Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11? Now, if you weren't here last week, we, uh, in our study of the Gospel of John, we entered into chapter 11, and we're immediately confronted with the story of one of Jesus' very dear friends, Lazarus, who had contracted a very serious illness, which left him teetering on the brink of death. And so we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, very important. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Well, we saw last week that Lazarus did die. And if you weren't here and Jesus said he wasn't going to die, but he did die, want to know what that's all about, you can go online and listen to the study. But this begs the question. We started to get into this last week a little bit, but I want to continue it today before we got right back into John's study next time. But this begs the question that if Jesus, being God, of course, loved this family so much, and he did, they were very close, why did he allow Lazarus to get sick in the first place? And more to the point, why did he allow Lazarus to eventually die? I mean, this puzzled some people who were at the tomb that day. In verse 37, uh, they said, Could this man who opens the eyes of the blind, could he not have kept this man from dying? That's an interesting question. It's a valid question. And it springboarded us into this little two-part series. Why does God allow bad things to happen to seemingly good people? He tells us he loves the world. He loves everybody, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So if he loves everyone, and, and, and we believe he is a good God, a God of love, well, if he's a God of love who cares about people, the question is, why does he allow bad things to happen to seemingly good folks? Now, that question has not only plagued unbelievers of the centuries so as to keep them from coming to Jesus, but it has also driven away many people who have, had, who have professed faith in God at one time in their life. During the, uh, the, the, the top of his ministry, Billy Graham was drawing thousands to stadiums to preach the gospel. We all know who Billy Graham is. Uh, many of you probably have never heard the name Charles Templeton, though. Charles Templeton was doing in Canada what Billy Graham was doing here in the States. He was holding crusades, uh, sometimes that rivaled even Billy Graham's crusades in number. But he was secretly wrestling with a nagging doubt. He kept it quiet for years. The doubt was, if God is so good and so loving, why does he allow suffering in this world? 
Why do bad things happen to good people? He was wrestling with this quietly, going on in ministry. And then one day it all came to a head. He was somewhere where he saw a magazine. It was a Time magazine of an African mother holding her little infant baby in her arms. The child was dead. It had died from famine due to a drought that was going on in that part of Africa. Charles Templeton looked at that photo and something inside of him just, he just snapped. He says, who gives the rain? Isn't it God? If he's there and he's good and if he's all powerful, how could he have withheld rain from these people allowing children to die? I can't believe a God like a good and loving God exists. He renounced God, walked away from his faith. He died a few years ago. I don't know if he ever came back to the Lord. I don't know. Of course, that was a few years ago. Just a couple of weeks ago, a Christian performer, maybe you read about this, also walked away from his Christian faith. A little part of the article goes, the lead singer of a Christian rock band and the son of a pastor announced on Instagram that he no longer believes in God. He said, I've been terrified to post this for a while, but it feels like it's time for me to be honest. John Stengard said, who is the front man of the Christian band Hawk Nelson. I never heard of them, but then again, I don't follow music like I used to. Um, but this John Stengard wrote this uh, article and uh, came out May 20th. He said, after growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid, playing and singing in the Christian, a Christian band, and having the word Christian in front of most of the things in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God, he said. Now, if you were to go online, you could access um, a little video he did where he explained the reasons why he had renounced his faith and no longer believed in God. And one of the things he said, he was wrestling, I'm putting it in my words, one of the things he said, as I listened, I realized he was wrestling with the age-old problem. If God is real and he's a good and loving God, why is there evil in the world? Why does he allow it to exist? Several years ago, I listened to a, an entire series by apologist and author Norm Geisler on this subject. Throughout the course of this message, I want to share with you some of the quotes that Norm gave on this subject. He said, and I quote, the most powerful argument ever devised against the existence of God, atheists, agnostics, this is the best they got. This is their big gun argument. And by the way, they think it's an airtight argument, which proves that God does not exist, because if he did, how could a good and loving and all-powerful God allow all the evil and chaos and in, 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 in all in the world? And Norman Geisel said, this, this is the um, greatest, most powerful argument they have ever come up with against the existence of God. Here it is. If an all-powerful God exists who created the universe, 
And if he is all good, who put morality into the heart of man to show us that he is a good and moral God, then why does evil exist in the world? If God is all good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he is all powerful so that he could eliminate evil, yet evil is not eliminated, therefore an all good, all powerful God cannot exist. He could exist as a partly good God or a partly powerful God, but he can't be both. Because if he was all good, he would eliminate evil. If he was all powerful, he could eliminate evil. And since evil has not been eliminated, no such God exists, end quote. Now, if you'll indulge me for the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to look at this in a little more detail. Uh, it deviates from our study in John's gospel a little bit, but as you see, it does dovetail with this passage in John 11. It's important for, enough for us to spend a little time on it so that you have at least a working understanding of what skeptics and agnostics and atheists will throw at you in the way of what they consider to be an airtight argument, especially because Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, he tells us, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. A defense. Be ready to always give a defense. Greek, apologia. We get a word apologetic from. That's what apologetics is. It's giving answers to skeptics and unbelievers for why we believe what we believe, why Christianity is true when Buddhism and Mohammedism and Confucianism and any other ism out there is wrong. Again, Dr. Norman Geisler says, he goes on to say, I should say that, for the atheist and skeptic, they believe that this is an airtight argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. Here it is again. <clears throat> if God is all-good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he is all-powerful so that he could eliminate evil, yet evil is not eliminated before, uh, therefore, uh, yet evil is not eliminated, therefore, an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. The problem with that argument is that it's built on a faulty assumption. Here it is. That just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, it never will be. If the atheists phrase the argument correctly, and they purposely don't, because you could easily shoot it down, but if the atheists phrase the argument correctly, it wouldn't prove his point. If he said, if there is an all-good God who would eliminate evil and an all-powerful God who could eliminate evil, and since he hasn't, listen, yet eliminated evil, he can't exist. If the question was phrased like that, our response would immediately be, just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, doesn't mean it won't be eliminated someday. If the atheist could say with all certainty, if God is all good, he would. If he is all powerful, he could. Evil has not yet been eliminated, and it never will be. Geisler said, now 
That is a powerful argument for why no good and loving God exists. Again, if they could say with all certainty, if God is all good, he would. If he is all powerful, he could. Evil has not yet been eliminated, and it never will be. Therefore, no such God exists. Geisler says now he's got a good argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. But listen, the only way anyone could make that statement, a statement like that, would be if they were all-knowing and could know and would know the future perfectly. We have just started the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. And the book of Revelation tells us that one day God will settle all accounts and eliminate all evil from the face of the earth. Criticizing God for not doing it right now, Geisler says, is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. The story is not over, folks. You know, if the story was over and God never dealt with evil and eliminated it, we would say, well, then either he doesn't exist or he's too weak to do anything about evil. The story is not over. Now, we get to, let me just say this to you. I peeked ahead and read the end of the book. We win. Just in case you were wondering, we win. Now look, you present an atheist with that argument? Well, just because God hasn't yet eliminated evil doesn't mean he won't someday take that. Well, then they come back with this argument. All right. Well, if God is all good and all powerful and he made everything, then where did evil come from? God must have created it, which means he can't be all good, or evil would not exist. That's not a bad argument, okay? And that argument, by the way, is not new. Augustine addressed it 400, 400 A.D., probably predates him by centuries, okay? But in 400 A.D., Augustine said, dealing with this very issue, to say God created everything, evil is something, therefore God created evil, is to miss the real nature of evil. God is the author of everything. We accept that premise. But evil is not a thing. It is a lack in a thing. Hence, it does not follow that God is the author of evil, end quote. Now, that's, that's a little confusing. Uh, in his book that where Norman Geisler uh, deals with this, he kind of clarifies what Augustine was saying. Uh, or what he meant, I'll share with you. Uh, Norm Geisler said, I quote, evil is a privation or a lack. Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's a kind of parasite. It exists only in something else. The Bible teaches that a good God created a good universe, but gave man a good thing called free will, which allowed for the possibility for evil to enter God's universe and corrupt it. That's true, right? You read the book of Genesis, every day God created, he said it was, and God saw it was good. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. At the end of the six days, he stepped back, it says, I think in verse 127 or 28, and God said it was all good. So God made a good thing. 
a good universe, free of evil, free of corruption, right? Free of sin. And he placed in a garden, a beautiful paradise, two people that he had made in his own image, breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. They became living beings with the very breath of God in them, body, soul, and spirit. And their spirit communed with God in the cool of the day as God came down into the garden and talked with man face to face. But we get to chapter 3, Satan takes the form of a serpent. He beguiles Eve. She eats of the forbidden fruit. God says, don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of that tree, dying, the Hebrew says, you will surely die. You'll set in process, in motion a process. They would die spiritually immediately, but then they would eventually die physically. Because sin would disrupt God's perfect design. God made evil possible, that's true, by giving us a good thing called free will. Listen, just like Henry Ford made possible every automobile accident that has ever occurred and all the suffering and death that has accompanied it, is Henry Ford responsible for every death of every automobile accident? Is he responsible because that he made something good. I think automobiles, we would all agree, have enriched our lives. Can you imagine going back to the horse and buggy days? That wasn't so sanitary, by the way, okay? But to say because Henry Ford made a good thing called an automobile, and people have not always driven responsibly so that they have hurt others or killed others uh, behind the wheel, it's not his fault any more than it's God's fault who made a good thing, his creation, and gave the man a good thing called free will. And just because man has not always exercised his free will responsibly or, or in a godly way and has brought evil into this world and the evil continues and people get hurt and people die and so on, is it God's fault? No, I don't believe so. Again, the Bible teaches that this world was not the world God originally created us to live in. He, he made a paradise for us to live in. It was man who messed it up, Mr. and Mrs. Man. Adam is Hebrew for man, right? It was sin that messed it up. Now, the skeptic would say, and I'll speak for the skeptic, okay, throughout the study. The skeptic would say at this point, did God know we were going to sin before he made us? The answer is yes. How do you know that? Because Revelation 13, verse 8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before God even created the world, he knew we were going to blow it. And in the mind of God, the plan of salvation was already in place. Jesus was already on Calvary's cross dying for sin. Of course God knew we were going to sin. Well, the skeptic says if God knew before he ever created us, that we were going to blow it, why did he let us? Why didn't he stop us? You mean force us? Why didn't he force us? The answer to that is because if he forced us, we would no longer be free moral agents. We would no longer be creatures with free will. God didn't want robots. He could have made robots. He's God. He could have made beings that had no free will, that just parroted, I love you, I love you, I love you, and always did, 
all that God wanted us, us to do. But that's not meaningful love, is it? That is not, God wanted love that was, that was free from our hearts. God wanted us to obey him from the heart and to love him from the heart. He didn't want robots. He didn't want automatons. I mean, true love cannot exist unless freely given through free will and choice. <clears throat> Geisler said, forced love is rape, and God is not a divine rapist. He went on to say, the classic defense of God against the problem is, of evil is that it is not logically possible to have free will and no possibility of moral evil. In other words, once God chose to create human beings with free will, then it was up to them rather than to God as to whether there was going to be sin in this world or not. That's what free will means. Built into the situation of God deciding to create human beings is the chance of evil and consequently the suffering that results from it, end quote. You can't have it both ways. You can't have free moral agents who cannot sin. Otherwise, you need to create robots, and God did not want us to be robots. That's not meaningful love. And so at this point, the skeptic cries out, Aha, so God did create evil. Well, Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, said no. He created the possibility of evil. People actualize that potentiality. The source of evil is not God's power, but mankind's freedom. Even an all-powerful God could not have created a world in which people had genuine freedom, and yet there was no potentiality for sin, because our freedom includes the possibility of sin within, within its own meaning. It is a self-contradiction, a meaningless nothing. To have a world where there is real choice, while at the same time, no possibility of choosing evil. To ask why God didn't create such a world is like asking why God didn't create colorless color or round squares, end quote. Again, the skeptic chimes in. If he knew we'd bring so much evil and heartache into the world, why did he even bother to, to create us in the first place? I'm sure there's a lot of moms and dads in this room. When you got married, you wanted to have children. Did you think that maybe a child would be born deformed or very sick or would grow up to be rebellious? I'm sure that crossed your mind. Well, you went ahead and had the children anyways, right? Why? Because you had this love inside you wanted to share it. We wanted to share it with children. God has this love in his heart. In fact, he doesn't just have a lot of love. The Bible says he is what? He is love. And God wanted to share his love with us, made in his image. As parents, we thought maybe a child if we had kids, would be born sickly or maybe grow up to be rebellious in some way. God wasn't imagining maybe. He knew exactly what we were going to be like. And yet he still chose to make us. People think, I've really disappointed God. You know, I've really let him down. You know, he is so upset with me. He is, you know. Uh, look, we can grieve God, but we can't surprise God. 
talk about disappointing. You can't disappoint God. It means God appointed you up here. He thought this highly of you, but you disappointed him. You came on down here. You didn't act the way he hoped you would act. We can't disappoint God. Can I grieve God when I walk in sin and disobey him? And so, Yeah. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. But you can't disappoint God. He knew everything about you before he ever made you. And he still said, I want you to be my child. I love you. I know what I'm getting into. Come to me. I don't care what you've done, who you are. I love you. My son died for you. Come to me. Be a member of my family. Why did God make us if he knew we'd be so much trouble? Because he had a lot of love in his heart and he wanted to share it with us. Even though he knew there would be problems between creation and culmination. Between Adam and Eve and God's kingdom, there would be a lot of messy years. The human race has been around this on this earth for about 6,000 years. <gasps> it's much more than that. They told me in school it was like 5 billion. Well, when I was in school, they told me it was like 18 billion. So I don't know if I'm getting younger or what, you know. They don't know. They don't know. It's a guess, okay? It's another subject. Um, but God knew. Between creation and culmination, where God was going to be dealing with mankind and redeeming fallen man and yet others rebelling against God and wars and, and, and murders and all kinds of heartache. The story of the human race is a very messy, painful story. It's an ugly story. You know why? It's the story of man trying to govern himself. America has been the ultimate experiment. And with regard to human government, this was the best I think the human race could have. And now even this is falling apart. Now even this is falling apart. And it tells us once more, more powerfully than I've ever experienced it, man cannot govern himself. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. I'm looking for a king. You say, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? I'm a monarchist. I'm looking for a king, and not just any king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is perfect. He is absolutely righteous. He is kind and he is loving. And he proved it by going to the cross and dying for all of us. He is going to come. He's going to take control. And he won't have to, to, to uh, you know, uh, get out there every four years and uh, campaign. That he wants to be reelected. <laughs> it's a kind of a messy system, though, isn't it, Pastor? Yes, of course it is. Because God wanted us to know anytime we try to govern our lives, let alone a country, we're going to mess it up. And part of it is God letting us see how that we can't do it. In the hopes that we cry out to Him, God, I've messed it up. Will you please take over? Please, Lord, be my king. 
Come into my life. Take over. I can't do it. I've made a mess. Because that's what I've been waiting for. You come to me. I'll make you a new creation. You let me live my life through you. And I'm going to give you the best possible life I can. Look, someone has said, the only way to get to the promised land was through the wilderness. The only way to form diamonds is to put pressure on coal. The only way to produce first order good is to allow second order evil. If you never allow evil, you'll never be able to defeat it. If you don't allow sin, you'll never have the higher good of forgiveness. If you don't allow tribulation, you'll never produce patience. God permits evil, but he does not promote evil. Again, the skeptic says, yes, but evil is bad. If God is good, why doesn't he protect us from it? First of all, again, let me just say this. Whatever evil is in the world didn't come from God. It came from man. You can read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14 on that subject. There's dozens of other passages. Whatever evil is in the world did not come from God. This is not the world he made for us to live in. We exercised our free will. Adam blew it for all of us. And now the consequences of sin have come into this world. And as such, God is not, not beyond using now our choice and the evil we have brought into our world. He is not against using it for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. What does that mean? Bringing people to Jesus and glorifying his name to show us that he is a good and forgiving and merciful God. You know that the Bible says angels are looking at you to learn stuff about God? What? That's ridiculous. They stand in his presence. What can I teach them about God? Do you realize if God never created man and man had never fallen, the angels would never have known. They, they know he's righteous. They know he's holy. They know he's glorious. They would have never known, known he's a loving God, a merciful God, a forgiving God. There was a whole side of God's character that nobody, the angels would never have known about if it wasn't for us. You're welcome. <laughs> that's what you call learning by not good stuff it's like the, the big circle with the line through it but um, but God is using the suffering God is using the pain to glorify his name by displaying his full character and showing mercy and love to fallen sinners Again, Geisler said, this is not the best of all possible worlds, but I think it is the best of all possible ways to get to the best of all possible worlds. A true believer is something like tea. Their real strength comes out in hot water. God permits suffering to produce the greatest virtues in us. Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold, end quote. Turn to Romans 5. Talking about how God will use suffering, persecution, tribulation to develop us, to grow us, to make us better. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul said, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produce perseverance. The Greek is hupomonia, it means uh, to hang in there under pressure. Not to bail when things get rough. 
okay? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Turn to James chapter 1. Look at verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produce, produces patience or perseverance. But let patience have its perfect work. In other words, hang in there. Don't bail on the trial. Don't try to get out of it. God's using it. Pray. Soak in what God's trying to teach you. But let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Guys, God allows pain to bring about the greater good. God allows pain to bring about the greater good. One author said, every athlete, especially an Olympic athlete, goes through incredible pain and suffering in training. Why? Well, for the glory and joy of victory. He said, if victory wasn't greater than the suffering it takes to get there, no one would ever endure it. So every athlete endures pain to bring about the greater good, end quote. That's how God deals with us. But secondly, for the people who can't understand why, even if man messed up this world, God can't just fix it, okay? Well, you, Lord, okay, we messed it up, but just can we have a do-over, you know? Can, can we just reverse your God? You can turn the clock back. Superman went around the earth the opposite way and saved Lois Lane. Can't you, can't you do that for us? You know, can't we get a do-over? Can't you just fix it? I love that. Just fix it. People that say, can't, why can't you guys just fix it? Why can't you just forgive us? Why is all this stuff that go cross and Jesus died? What, that, can't he just say, I've, you're forgiven? No, he can't. He can't. Because God, does, sin has to be paid for. It can't be swept under the rug and pretend it never happened. God's a righteous and holy God. He's got to atone for that. Somebody's got to atone for that sin. We couldn't. We were sinners. Sinners can't die for sinners. So Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, came down from heaven to die on the cross for us. The innocent dying for the guilty, right? People that say, you know, okay, we messed up this world, but why can't God just get, why can't we just start over? Because in their mind, the best possible world is a world that's problem-free, suffering-free. See, in their mind, that's the best possible world for us to live in. But they are harboring under a faulty assumption that the absence of all suffering would be the greatest good for mankind, or to put it another way, they feel a God of love would never or could never use suffering or pain for our good and for his glory. Well, that's where this message intersects with John 11. That's, that's the exact issue that the Holy Spirit is raising through Lazarus' sickness and ultimate death. And verse 5 makes it very, we'll talk about verse 5 more next time. But verse 5, if you didn't have verse 5 that Jesus loved this family, you'd be prone to think he didn't care about them. He was indifferent. No. The Holy Spirit wanted us to know that Jesus allowed Lazarus to get sick and ultimately to die uh, for the glory of God. But don't ever mis mistake that, that, that Jesus didn't love these people. 
Some people are harboring under this faulty assumption that God, a good God, would never or could never use somebody suffering for his glory or for their ultimate good. I'm of the mindset, and I think it's scriptural, we just read two passages, where there, there is a, a, only way God can mature us and grow us to the point he wants to is through suffering and trials. The Arabs have a proverb, all sunshine makes a desert. We need the rain, we need uh, the trial, the adversity. It drives us to God. I mean, uh, you know, what is the times in your life you felt the closest to God of all the times? Was it when things were going great, the sun was shining, you were being blessed beyond measure, or was it when you were suffering, adversity, heartache? It drove you to God. It made you a better Christian, a stronger person in Christ, right? Can God use these things for his glory and for our ultimate good? Of course he can. Now, at this point, there are others. And, and the question is, you know, can God use for good what Satan intended for evil? God made a good world. Satan came in the form of a serpent, beguiled Eve and Adam, and they ate the forbidden fruit. They, will, they did it of their own free will. They disobeyed God. But the devil was pushing them, right? Pushing them. Now the, the question is, can God use for good what the devil has used for evil? Yes, of course he can. And guess what he has? Oh, not just what we were just talking about. There are those skeptics, and I've heard them in, in, in the past. Maybe you have too. You talk about God loving us, and God, you know, uh, you know, he allows us to suffer because he has good in mind and, and, and all and so on. And, and, and they get very indignant at times. I've heard them. Begin to rail at God. Oh, sure, it's easy for him to say. He's up there in his ivory tower in heaven. No evil touches him, no heartache. He throws it down on us, but, but he's exempt. Oh, really? Well, that's not the God of the Bible that I have read about. Because that God didn't just throw these little platitudes on us. Oh, suffering is good for you. So here's a little more suffering. No, he came down from heaven, became a man, born in a stable, lived in poverty, worked hard, went around for three years doing good for people. When it was all said and done, they rejected him. They turned him into the Roman authorities who beat him. They put a bag over his head and punched him with closed fists, Isaiah tell us, so that he couldn't, you know, you, when, you, when you see a of, of a blow coming, you, you instinctively kind of move away to soften it. With a bag over your head, you don't know where, where the next blow is coming from. And they beat the Lord so badly, Isaiah says he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Then they pulled the bag off and took a crown of thorns, those six-inch Judean thorns, hard as nails, and they took a rod and they beat it into his skull. They took him out to the scourging post. Many people died at the scourging post. It was so horrific. They left your back wide open. Arteries exposed, bones showing. A lot of guys couldn't even take that. They died at the scourging post. Jesus survived, and they stuck a 200-pound cross on his back and made him walk up a, high, a steep hill to, to get a Calvary, Golgotha, where they then drove nails into his wrists and feet and put him up on that cross and dropped it into a hole with a thud. Don't tell me God didn't know 
what suffering was all about. Jesus Christ suffered more than any of us could have suffered if we had a thousand lives. So whatever this God did, and however he feels about suffering, he's no ivory tower deity. He came down and took his own medicine and died for all of us. And let me tell you something, folks. The most, the most terrible thing that has ever happened in the history of the world became the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. What am I talking about? The cross. For humanity to kill their own God who made them, that's got to be the worst thing in all human history. But for God to using that, use that suffering to turn around and save those very people from their sins, that's the best thing that could have ever happened and, and has ever happened to the human race. Don't forget ever, the God who said the soul that sins shall surely die is the same God who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell but would have everlasting life. Author John Stott said, I could never myself believe in, a, in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different parts of Asia and stood respectfully before a stat the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to look away. And in my imagination, I turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He, in, he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark uh, against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours, end quote. Again, the skeptic would say, I'm still having a problem understanding why a good God permits so much evil in this world and why some Christians now die young and why evil people live so long. You can read Psalm 73 this week. The psalmist wrestled with that very question. Here I love you. I'm a child of yours and I'm suffering. I'm going through all kinds of adversity. I look at the unbeliever. He's wealthy. He's got all his kids. He lives to be a, a, a ripe old age. It's not fair, God. Well, read Psalm 73. There's a lot of things about God we don't understand, right? People think if I can't understand God, I can't believe in God. Are you kidding me? God is infinite. Think of it this way. Think of our brains like a little thimble. And God is all the oceans on the face of the earth. You try to pour all the oceans on the face of the earth into that thimble, there's going to be a lot of spillage. God says, you're not going to fully understand me. I'm infinite. You're finite. I'm going to reveal to you enough that you need to understand and believe 
that I'm real and love you, but to know me in, in total truth, it's not going to happen. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of secret things about the Lord. I'll never understand this side of glory. I may never understand them ever. But what God has revealed, that's a treasure. Hold on to it. Know it. Meditate on it. I love Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. This is a great one. God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Stop trying to figure me out. J.B. Phillips said, if God were small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Guys, sometimes God will call upon his people to suffer for his glory and even to have loved ones taken from us too soon. At those times, we need to trust him. I'm going to read to you now as we close the greatest story on this subject I've ever heard. I've never heard another story. They, they might be out there. I have never heard a more powerful story for how sometimes God will allow us to go through things that look like he doesn't love us, he doesn't care about us, he might even be a sadistic God who loves hurting us. And yet all the while he's working. He's doing things. I can't see it. But if I don't believe it by faith and believe he's a good and loving and, and God and all, I'm going to fall into the trap of thinking he is a mean, vindictive God or he doesn't exist at all. It's a little long, but I think you'll appreciate when we're finished. It's the story of David and Svea Flood. This comes out of Jim Simbola's book, Fresh Power. It goes like this. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood went with their two-year-old son to, from Sweden to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At, at the village of Nadalara, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a special breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who, who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. The, 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 the chief you know, let one young guy go there, and they had contact with only one, this one boy. The chief let him go there and sell them chickens and eggs once or twice a week. Svea Flood, a tiny woman of uh, only four foot eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. And in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided that they had, a, that they had, had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Sevilla Flood remained near Nadalara to go on alone. 
Then of all things, Svea found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born whom they named Ina. The delivery, however, was exhausting and Svea flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days and she died. Inside David flood, something snapped at that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station, giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons. He snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl and was afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed, the Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then to a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the, in the Seattle area and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read the words, but as she turned the pages, all of a sudden a photo stopped her cold. There in the primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Svea Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight to a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does it say? What does it say? She demanded. Well, the instructor summarized the story. It was about some missionaries who uh, had come to Nadalara long ago, the birth of a white baby, uh, the death of the young mother, uh, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, uh, and now and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all the students to Christ, the children of their parents to Christ, even the chief became a Christian. Today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Svea Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden. There Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke, still bitter. He had one rule in his family. Never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him. They replied, even though he's very ill, but you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. 
Well, Aggie was not deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere. She approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Ina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's okay, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. Tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been made like this because of him. He turned his face back toward the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I I've got a little story to tell you, and it's true. It's a true story. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win his whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are six hundred African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He's never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He soon began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God, the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America and within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire, formerly the Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the national church representing some 110,000 baptized believers spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Svea Flood. Yes, madam. The man replied in French, his words being translated into English. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought... <laughs> Doing my Tammy Faye thing again. Uh, he said, I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, you must come to Africa to see because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that's exactly what Aggie and Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day, in the church, the pastor read from John 12, verse 24, I tell you the truth, Jesus said. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He then followed with Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap someday with songs of joy. Look, I don't know what's ahead for our nation. I know God loves America, but we are a hard-hearted people. We are dull of hearing, we are stiff-necked, we are hard in our hearts. And as C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures but shouts in our pain. And sometimes God has to shout through adversity 
or national calamity to get people's attention. And if that's what he has to do to reach the people of America, he's going to do it. And guess what? We're going to have to go along with it. We're going to have to go along with it. We're not going to be immune from it. Are we ready? Are we ready to suffer for Jesus' sake? Because the ultimate goal of our Christianity is to glorify God and see others saved. Is that our mindset? A lot of Christians know it's not. It's what's God, what is God going to do for me right now? How is he going to prosper my business? Give me a beautiful home and, and luxury automobiles and nice vacations and a big bank account. They are thinking so worldly and so temporal that I'm convinced when tribulation starts and there's a little suffering they have to go in, they're going to renounce their faith. If they ever had it, I don't know. Why doesn't God put an end to suffering? He's going to. The story is not over yet, but it's coming close. Right now, God is giving people a chance. Just like he gave Adam and Eve a chance, right? And a choice. Are they going to obey him, love him, embrace him, and receive Jesus? Or are they going to go on living in rebellion and so on? There is a world coming very soon that will be free of disease, evil, injustice, suffering, pain, and, of course, death. That is the kingdom God is inviting every person on the planet to be a part of. You have to receive Jesus. If you haven't received Jesus, today's the day. No more playing games. No more maybe someday. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says tomorrow is not guaranteed to anybody. You may not have it tomorrow. God forbid you get an action on the way home and die. Today is the day. Right now is the time to get right with God. I want to lead you in a prayer. And if you want to receive Jesus, just in your heart, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I believe that you're Almighty God. And I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead the third day. And I believe... You're coming again to establish a kingdom of righteousness and purity and love where no evil, no injustice, no pain will ever dwell again. And Lord, right now, I invite you into my heart. I believe in you. Please come into my heart. Take control of my life. And make me a brand new creation. Lord, you'll be my king. I'm tired of leading my life. Please take over. Please be my king. And direct me where I should go. Fill me with your spirit that I can be a light in this dark world for you. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, come on up afterwards so we can talk. And uh, may God give us all grace. To keep our eyes on Jesus, the finish line is in view. May God give us grace to finish well.